0: And then I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 4. Let's begin reading together in verse 15. Acts chapter 4 and verse 15. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it but to stop this from spreading any further among the people we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of jesus but peter and john replied judge for yourselves whether it is right in the sight of god to obey you rather than god For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This morning we come to the first uh, rise of persecution, or if you will, pressure against the early church that we're going to find in the book of Acts. And you're going to find that after this, it's repeated on a regular basis. This is the first rise of pressure against those that are speaking in the name of Christ. I just want to give you this overview of Acts chapter 1 through 3. And here's the basic overview. Church is enjoying a season of blessing. They have seen the resurrection of Christ. They have seen the ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand. Pentecost has come, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in the hearts of believers. They have been transformed from weak, shy individuals to powerful witnesses for the glory of Christ. The result of their witness early on, 3,000 are saved, and at the beginning of chapter 4, 2,000 more are added to the fellowship of believers that is now burgeoning and growing. The end of chapter 2 tells us that there is an undeniable amazing unity that is present. An undeniable and amazing love that is present in the early church. That anyone looking at it from outside could see that this is a group blessed of God. Chapter 3 begins with a miracle. Okay, The first miracle recorded in the book, unless you count the coming of the Spirit of God as a miracle, which you may. It's an act of God, not an act of man. But the first miracle that relates to an individual is the healing of a man who was born lame. Forty years later, he is healed by the power of God through a work of the disciples. The disciples are called into account to to give uh, the name in which this miracle was done. Okay, so they're they're called in and the question to them is, in whose name did you perform this sign? Verse 7. They had Peter and John brought in before them to question them. This is after having them in jail overnight. They say to them, by what power or what name... Did you do this? Okay, how is it that this man who was born lame, lived 40 years as a cripple, is now walking? Okay, that's the question that they ask. So you find a season of blessing, one through the beginning of chapter 3, and then you start to find this rising of pressure against them. Verse 1 through 3 of chapter 4, they're put in jail. Verse 7, they're confronted, asked they ask for an accounting of how is this happening? And so what's happening? In the path of obedience on the part of the disciples to the command of Christ, pressure is beginning to rise against them. Okay, and I think one of the keys we just want to note at the beginning is the pressure that they're, they're experiencing is a result of obedience to the commands of God. To teach His word and to exercise gifts of healing in their community. Okay, in response to that, pressure is rising. When we come to verses 15 through 17 we find the dilemma that the religious leadership is in. After they hear the boldness of Peter and John, and see the miracle, see the man standing there in an undeniable way, healed, they're, they're put in a very difficult spot. Okay? And that spot causes them to send John and Peter out of the meeting, and they confer or deliberate together. They ordered them to withdraw, verse 15, 16, they say to each other, what are we going to do with these men? Everybody in Jerusalem knows that an outstanding miracle has taken place. It is, in their words, undeniable. Okay, everyone that's there, that is there in the city knows that this has happened. So if they're faced with an interesting question. Do we, in light of this miracle demonstrating the power of God, do we turn from our sinfulness and flee to God for salvation? Or do we resort to damage control and try to control those that are threatening their power base. Okay, I think one of the important historical issues that you need to reckon with here is this. The Sanhedrin was the religious elite in Jerusalem. They were the strongest political power apart from Rome that was there overseeing them. Okay, This proclamation of life through Jesus and of healing through Jesus and of miracles through Jesus threatens their authority. It threatens their power. It threatens their financial well-being. Okay. So they have a choice. Yield to the evidence that is before them that they say is undeniable. They say, we, we can't reject the fact that a notable miracle has taken place. But repenting means turning. It means giving up our past life. It means giving up sinful habits and patterns. And what you find in this text is that there is a profound unwillingness on their part to do that. So verse 17, they come to their conclusion. They say, to stop this from spreading... And and this is fascinating. The word spreading means to keep it from breaking into more and more little pieces and infiltrating the whole city of Jerusalem. Okay, so they want to contain it. Okay, hold it together. Don't let it spread any further. Among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Okay, so that's, that's where you come. The disciples have done works in the name of Jesus. they preached grace and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. The religious establishment has reacted by saying, your preaching is threatening, it what? That, that people are going to blame us for putting Jesus Christ to death because you're doing miracles in the name of the one that we destroyed. Okay, that's their issue. That is their struggle. The aim of the adversity, I think, is very clear. The aim of the adversity is silence. Okay, so that they will threaten the disciples, verse 17 and verse 21. I just mentioned this very specifically. They brought them in and threatened them. Aim of the threat, silence witness in the name of Christ. Okay, so that becomes the first rise of adversity that comes to the early church. They want to silence talk of hope that is found in the name of Jesus. Now, At one level, you have to ask this question. Why is this such a big issue to them? I mean, yeah, the power and the finance, all that stuff. Yeah, I I understand that. What it means is this. Their attempts to silence Jesus by putting him to death have what? They have completely failed. Okay, they took Christ, this group of men, took Christ, put him to death because they couldn't tolerate his love, his passion, his sacrifice, his service. Couldn't tolerate it. And His teaching about true righteousness that was not found in religion, but that was found in His shed blood. And for that truth, they put Him to death, thinking they would silence Him. But what did God do? On the third day, God raised Him to life again. That risen Savior gave His disciples a commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel of Christ. And so that's where we come. A first serious challenge to a young church that is simply walking in obedience to the commands and directives of God. Now, I want you to think through this with me for a second. If you were the early church, what would your temptation be? All right, they're threatening you with an, an incredible amount of power and authority. They're telling you you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus. Okay, here's one thing the disciples could have thought. Okay, hey, we've experienced a lot of success. Why... And this would be a very American, modern way of thinking about this. Why go on ruffling feathers and creating problems? Why don't we just blend in, okay, into the culture, and let's just take care of the people that God has blessed us with. We're off to a really good start. We've seen amazing things happening. So let's, let's kind of modify and adjust our approach to maintain favor with the religious establishment. Okay, that would be a good, a good American resolution to this conflict, wouldn't it? Hey, you know what? You're right. We'll... We're, we're, we're causing problems for you by speaking the truth that's in the name of Jesus. So we're going, to t- we're going to turn the volume down a little bit. So that we can live together. And so that all of us can get along. Okay, that's one temptation they have. So the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Okay, that, that's their option. How should you respond to adversity that comes into your life? When there is pressure because of your deep-seated, deep-rooted convictions... Okay, when when people tell you, hey, I don't want you to talk about Jesus around me anymore. Or I think you should keep that Jesus talk to yourself. Okay, religion's a private matter. And we live in a culture that has many religious perspectives represented. So the best thing you can do, Christian, you can be quiet about your perspective that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Why don't you just keep that to yourself? And you know what the average American Christian thinks? They never say it out loud. But in their mind, they rationalize it. I have. To my own shame. Okay. And what do we do? We turn the volume down just a little bit. Incrementally, we keep turning it down. Until the silence about Jesus is deafening and shameful. Because why? The purpose of the adversity is what? To silence witness about Christ. To get you to be quiet about the moral principles that are biblical truth. Okay, just, hey, back off. Come on, you Christians, you need to lighten up a little bit. Don't take things so seriously. Let's, let's be a little more tolerant of a lot of different perspectives. Okay, which is basically to make you feel guilty about believing that there is something that is absolute and true. How should we respond to adversity? How did the early church in this setting respond to the pressure that came against them? I want to make this suggestion, this is not in the text, but I think this is a good starting place for all of us as Christians. When pressure comes, when it mounts, when there's adversity, the first question that we could ask ourselves is this. Is there something in my, in my approach, in my style, in my life, that is the cause of this adversity? Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? Is, is there... Is there something about me that has been rude or unloving or unserving or uncaring towards other people that I need to address first? See, it's always easy to look at the outside and say, you know, all this pressure is coming from bad people who just simply dislike Jesus. Okay, which sometimes we can use as a means of saying, it can't be me. It must be the people that I'm talking to that are the problem. I think we need to be sure as the body of Christ that we do a heart check, that we realize and and, and just... We just come to a place where we are motivated by a deep, firm conviction and love for Christ. About which we can't be quiet. Okay, so that when people say, I wish you were quiet about that, we, our response is, I can't be quiet. I can't turn the volume all the way down. That's not an option. Paul said in Philippians 3, this This is the tone of of the Apostle Paul who was so strong in his proclamation of Jesus. He said, I tell you with tears, they are enemies of the cross. And that's how he responded to adversity. I mean, he didn't run from it. But he didn't turn the volume down either. Okay, what did he do? He spoke the truth in love. He spoke with broken tones. And folks, I think sometimes we need to look at our witness, and if if I'm constantly finding that I have friction and adversity in my relationships, first ask yourself, am I the cause of this? Or is the truth of Jesus the cause of this? Don't assume that it's always them. It's the outsiders that just don't understand, don't get it. They're just angry and fed up with Jesus, and that's why this is happening. Sometimes we've got to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, am I the cause of this? But as we say that as we as we make that heart check I think the thing that we have to realize in this text is that the cause of adversity was obedience to the very clear directive of Jesus. Okay that's the that's the cause here and I think Peter is not surprised by this. Peter will later say in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 he says your adversary the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What did Peter know? Peter knew that obedient Christian living would at certain times along the way experience opposition or adversity. We don't live in a world that walks uh, walks up to us on the street and says, hey, by the way, are you a Christian? And they say, yeah, I am. And they say, would you tell me about Jesus? Okay, I mean, occasionally that happens. That's not usually the way it works, is it? Usually when people find out you're a Christian, they kind of... I've had people say this to me a number of times. Are you like... Like one of those like Bible bangers, or, you know, or are you holy? Are you like a holy roller? Okay, because people have what they have a perspective, right, about that kind of Christian, and then you have you're kind of putting us forward. Now you have to clarify what do you believe? Okay, and I think lovingly you have to say, look, I'm going to be real honest with you. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. I believe that on the third day, God raised him to life again. And I believe that hope is only found in Jesus. Can't apologize for that. I'm not creating it. It's what God says. Sometimes that's the approach that we have to take. It's the, it's the honest approach. Okay? Because what people sometimes are asking you in that question, are you like, like one of those born-again Christians? What they're really saying is, do you believe Jesus is the only way? You know what? You need to have the courage to say, yeah, that's what I believe. Or, better yet, you know what? That's what the Bible teaches. Okay? You don't have to say it in an angry way. You don't have to say it in a proud, arrogant, belligerent way. No. This is what God says. This is the truth. And we have an obligation to speak that truth with the realization that when we do, Satan will actively oppose what God is doing. Okay? And the thing that I think becomes so clear in this book is this. As the church begins to walk in obedience to the directive of Christ, to do works of love in His name, and to proclaim the good news that salvation is found in Jesus only, it is then that the evil one, the adversary, begins to crank up the pressure against the church. And the question, this is the question I want us to answer: How do we respond when that happens? In order to give you, in light light of this thought of just asking, okay, first of all, is it something uh, wrong in my approach? Am I approaching this in love? And if I am, okay, then here's three responses that I need to give to adversity when it comes in my life. Three responses. First of all, do this. Settle your convictions. Settle settle in your heart what you really believe about Jesus Christ. Okay, get it soon and get it clear. Okay, because notice what happens. Verse 17, they make a decision to bring them in. Okay, we're going to bring them in. Here's what we're going to tell them. We're going to tell them, you can't do this anymore. Okay, so you have this, Half round semicircle of 70 plus religious leaders called the Sanhedrin. Peter and John are brought to stand right in the midst. Who are they? These are fishermen, these are unlettered men. They have no credentials, but somehow they have attracted the attention of the powers that be. Okay, and they're brought in and put in that spot in front of him. Peter's been here before, right? Peter knows exactly what it is to deny the truth that he believes with all of his heart because he's afraid. So they bring him in. The goal of the Sanhedrin, silence these two men and all of their friends. Let's take out the leaders. That's their goal. And so what do they do? The text says this. They threaten them. That is that there are serious consequences if you continue to do this. They know the consequences that Jesus experienced. The consequences that Jesus experienced were what? Death. Execution. And so they say to them in verse 18, they call them in again. After they wrestle with this, we can't deny the miracle, so what are we going to do? Let's threaten them. Let's, let's aim to silence them with pressure. So they called them in, and they commanded them, do not speak at all in the name of Jesus. Not a word in Jesus' name. Okay, that's the, that's the thrust, Okay here's the question. What is that? That is a command to disobey who? God. Why? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Look back, look back there real quickly. Okay? Here's what Jesus said to them. Do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift of my fa- that my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then drop down to verse 8. I just read verse 4. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses okay so here's the dilemma okay the powers that be the Sanhedrin are saying to them you are not allowed to speak in his name at all anymore okay and what do the disciples say hey we need a couple hours to think about that okay could could you time out could we have a moment is that what they have to do no You know why? They have settled convictions about the truth of Jesus and about their responsibility to communicate the amazing work of Christ. That to them is not a duty, it's a privilege. And I want you to notice how they respond to this. Okay? They they respond with a settled conviction about Jesus. Go back to verse 12 of chapter 4. Their first conviction is this. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, they include themselves and their audience in this discussion. Their settled conviction, number one, is Jesus is the only way. Salvation is not found in the teaching of any man. It's not found in the teaching of, of Gautama Buddha. It's not found in the teaching of Hinduism. It's not found in the teaching of Muhammad. It is found in the name of Jesus. Okay? Jesus only and only Jesus. Okay, that, that's... The settled conviction that is going to drive their response. So, if you believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only hope for people who do not know Him, and the world says to you, "Oh, by the way, you can't talk about Him," okay, you're faced with an interesting dilemma, and so am I. They had been sent by Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They do not need to time or time to 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 think about to deliberate on what, how they how we can. Hey, John, what are we going to do with this, Peter says? No. Their response is automatic. And notice what it says. But Peter and John reply. Okay, so they say you can't speak in his name. In contrast, Peter and John reply, verse 19, you judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than him. Now this is like the ace in the hole. Okay? Who are they talking to? They're talking to the religious leaders. What do they ask Him? Hey, we'll let you decide. Should we obey you or should we obey God? And you know what the religious establishment says? Nothing. Nothing. Okay? What was at stake for the disciples? Okay? What's at stake for the disciples is an issue of loyalty. It's an issue of obedience to the King of kings and Lord of lords. They have been sent by Him to share the truth. They put the question back to them, and then in verse 20, they give their reply. Notice what they say. They say, you decide whether it's right, in God's sight, to obey you rather than God. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and about what we have heard. Okay, what are they saying? They're saying, look, this sharing Jesus is not for us a duty. It's not a burden that we carry. That we oh, we just have to do this. They're saying we we can't help it. We really believe that He is the only hope for people, and so we have an obligation. We have a responsibility. We have a we have a privilege to say to people from all different walks of life: there is hope for you for deliverance from your sin, and it is found in. Jesus Christ. What does a witness do? Jesus says, I'm going to send you out to be witnesses. You know what a witness does? A witness comes into a courtroom and testifies to what they have seen and heard. And the disciples had been sent up by Jesus to witness to what they had seen and heard Jesus do. And so when they are faced with the situation, they give a response that is clear because they have settled convictions And I think the other thing that just arises as I look at this is these convictions were not established in that moment. Okay? These convictions were established ahead of time. All right, They didn't get in that place and then say, you know, we never thought this would happen. Jesus told them this would happen. They had thought about how they would respond to this circumstance. And when this circumstance comes on the scene, they don't have to sit back and wonder, how should we respond? They respond immediately. Sooner is always better than later. In response to sharing your faith and your moral convictions, all of you have probably been through this circumstance where you have something you have to say to someone, and when you hesitate, does it make it easier to say that to them or harder? And it gets, it gets harder and harder and harder. Okay, what did these guys do? They they made a decision up front. You're asking us to disobey Christ. That's a non-starter for us. We must speak in His name. Okay, and 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 this. As, as I think about this, this, this text, I think one of the things that we have to do as, as, as a church, as individuals living in our culture, where Christ is being continually pushed out of the public square, right? I, I know most of you that teach, you know what you feel like? You feel like you can't talk about Jesus in the school, right? Or you wonder, how do you do this? I can't. Okay. I'm not, I'm not in that position, Okay. And I know for a lot of people that work in the medical profession, for instance, you're going to be faced with serious moral decisions. And your convictions need to be established ahead of time. That if someone asks me a question about Jesus, I'm going to answer with the truth. Okay, and may that have consequences for us at times. I think the answer down the road in the very near future is going to be yes. Yes, I think some health professionals are going to lose their jobs if they hold to their convictions about life and when it begins. Okay, I believe some people are going to lose their jobs over moral convictions that you know what, I can't teach that. I refuse. Okay? And I think what we have to be careful about is that we I think we've accepted the pressure of the culture and at some level at some point, okay, we're we're yielding allegiance more to man than we are to God. I know most people in the workplace, if you're in a superior position at work, I've talked to people, they they fear witnessing or sharing the truth about Jesus with someone that is a subordinate to them. Why? Well, because that could be construed as... Okay? Do you understand? That pressure, sharing amongst colleagues in the workplace, is that appropriate? Because i am going to tell you something, you can rationalize silence about Jesus in every area of your life. And we've been given a commission by Christ that is above all other authorities, all other laws. And that is that we are to be witnesses to what Christ has done for us. And I I understand, this is an area of tension. But the disciples had a settled conviction. We cannot help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. And I think we as believers need to learn to wrestle with, how do I effectively obey Christ in a setting where it's very difficult to work that out because of the cultural pressures that are so abundant and so strong. I think we need to realize that privatizing our faith and our moral truth is not an option. Okay? And, but that's what the world wants us to do. Okay, that's what the culture is doing and that is what some laws are doing. They're demanding that you as a Christian, you privatize your faith and your moral conviction. You, you keep those sorts of things to yourself. Okay, can we as a church, can we as believers say, you know what, for us that is not an option. Okay, I can't, I can't be elected to political office and park my Christianity outside and operate as a non-Christian in that realm. I can't go into the classroom and school and teach as a non-Christian. I can't go into the workplace and manage in my job as a non-Christian. I, it's who I am. I'm a Christian who teaches. I'm a Christian who manages in the workplace. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian who interacts with their neighbors. These guys had a settled conviction. Yes, we understand the threat. We clear, we know what you did to Jesus. Here's our response. We cannot be silent about the things that we have seen and heard. Okay, settled conviction. And I think uh, courageous courageous conviction sometimes i think we as believers may need to say god i have been silent and i I just i can tell you this personally as i've studied through this text i've been convicted about the the degree of silence about christ that is so often prevalent in my own life well verse 21 and 22 the religious establishment doesn't take this kindly so verse 21 what do they do after further threats they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On the release, verse 23, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said. Now, here's what I think is neat. Okay, They, they, they faced this Semicircle of religious leaders and they stand their ground. And Peter probably walks out saying to himself, Where did that come from? Where did that kind of boldness and courage and settled, where did that come from? Well, I mean, the answer is the Spirit of God has come into them and has, has converted them and, and changed them and, and caused people that are unlettered to sound lettered. They're speaking with power and authority, they're different. That's what the Spirit of God does. But when they leave, do they say, you know what, we're just going to do this on our own? No. They flee to the fellowship. Verse 23 says, they went to their own people. The idea is literally to their own friends. They reported all that the chief priest had said to them. What's the response of the early church to the pressure that is coming against them? One, a settled conviction that we Being silent about Jesus is not an option. We must obey God rather than men. That's their settled convictions. Jesus is the only way, and only Jesus is the way. Second thing that happens is this. They solidify their theology. Okay? Now, we live in a world where theology is perceived to be what? Theology is perceived to be irrelevant. Right? Theology is perceived to be boring. It's perceived to be divisive. It's perceived to be for the head, not for the heart. In, in that sense, it may not be necessary. That's the world that we live in. Where truth about God, doctrine, theology, is, is, is really pushed to the margin. People would rather read books about their personal life and personal improvement than they would about God. What do these people do when they face adversity? Books about self-improvement don't help you when you're facing adversity. Okay, What helps you? Words about God. And so they they solidify their theology, and theology simply is this, okay? Theos means God, logos means words. The theologos, theology, what is it? They, They settle their mind in this area of words, truth about God that will help them in this crisis. Folks, understand that this situation for them is dead serious. The last time they threatened someone and he didn't comply, what did they do to him? They killed him. These guys have incredible authority over the people of Jerusalem. And so they're they're reckoning with, okay, what do we do with this? I want you to notice what happens. In verse 24, it says, When they heard this, that is the friends of Peter and John, they come to them, to the early church, now growing and strong. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. They cried out with one voice. Okay, and I want you to notice how this unfolds. I want you to notice how they solidify and how they firm up their theology so that they can continue in obedience to God. Notice what it says. They say, Sovereign Lord, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Your servant David, our Father. Now, I want you to notice what happens. Okay, notice what happens. They're going to they're lay out just their, their, the simple underpinnings of what they believe about God. First thing they say in verse 24 is what? God, you created everything. Okay, they, result, they resort to, to the doctrine of creation. Who put all this here? Who rules over all this? Who is the ultimate Lord? God created everything is their first conviction. It all belongs to Him. And the word that's used in the, in the beginning of verse 24, when it says, most of your translations probably say, they, they raised their voices in God, to God in prayer, and they said, Sovereign Lord. Okay, in the original language, that's one word. You know what the word is? And I'll give you a Greek word, but you'll understand it right away. It's the word "despotes." Okay, what are they saying? You are the despot. You know what a despot is? Despot is an ultimate ruler who in his authority is uncontested okay a despot doesn't have to check with others to see what they feel about what he's saying okay so when they talk about god what do they say you are the sovereign lord you created everything all of this is ultimately under your control god look at what they're saying it's in a sense what they're doing they just they come back to God and they say, God, you created everything. Jeremiah 32, 17 says this. It says, O oh Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. And there is nothing too hard for you. Okay? When you're threatened, when you feel adversity, when you sense it, you know what you need to do? You need to think about God. You don't need to think, how am I going to get myself out of it? How am I going to respond to this? How am I going to fix this? How am I going to avoid this pressure? No, you know what you need to do? You need to say, God, you are the despotes. You are the ultimate authority. Sovereign. Lord. You created everything. And notice the next thing he says. In verse 25 through 26. You spoke by the Holy Spirit. This is Peter's understanding and the early church's understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. When he quotes from Psalm 2 in this text, he sees it as the words of who? God. And so what is he going to do? He's going to quote from Psalm 2 to express a truth about God that relates to their specific situation at this time. So he says, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father, and said this, why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? Okay, here's a fascinating picture. This idea of raging is a word that's used to talk about a horse snorting and, and, and kind of pulling up before going into battle. Okay, what, what's the horse doing? Okay, he, he's, kind of, he's kind of saying, I'm not afraid of anything. Okay, this, they reel back and they snort as ready to rush into battle. Okay, what, what had the leaders that called for the death of Christ done? They reared up, they snorted, they threatened but notice the way that the psalmist sees what they did. He says, why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot in vain? Meaning their plans end in nothing. He says, why do they do that? Verse 26, the kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. What are they doing? What's the early church doing quoting Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, 1-2? to 2? You know what they're doing? They're reflecting back on the fact that God foretold the sufferings of Christ in the Old Testament. And that the plans that they had formed to come against the Messiah would end up ultimately in defeat. Okay, so they're they're, they're raging. They're planning what? The absolute destruction and silencing of Jesus. But what happened? What happened? Go back to chapter 3 and verse 15. Same audience. Here's what Peter said to He said, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Now well, that is powerful. What's Peter saying? You raged, you planned against the King of Kings. But what did God the Father in Heaven do? On the third day, He raised him to life again. Okay, this is powerful. Okay, they did their best to destroy what God was doing, and God Reversed it. Okay, this is the ultimate. If you want to use the word something backfiring, okay, this backfires on the religious establishment. They put Christ to death. God raised him to life. They rejected him, deemed him unworthy of life. What did God do? God the Father raised him to life and seated him on a throne that is high. And exalted. Which is to say what? Okay, what? Why does he quote from 25 and 26? Here's what it is to say. It is to say that God not only created everything, but also to say that God controls everything. And that His control is exhaustive. Follow on in verse 27. Peter says, Indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate... And this is, by the way, this is their praise as they pray to God. Indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. They schemed for his destruction. They wanted to eliminate and silence him. He was the one you anointed. When they did this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Okay, how much before their planning against Christ and the crucifixion of Christ did David speak? Okay, the answer is 1,000 years before the death of Christ, David, under the power and inspiration of the Spirit of God, spoke the words of God that said this is exactly what would happen. Okay, so what, what are they doing? Okay, what, what, are the, what is the early church doing as they, as they pray this psalm? They're praying Scripture. What are they doing? They're affirming that God said this would happen and that God would ultimately set His king on the throne. That's the idea here. If you go on in Psalm chapter 2 and go on to verses 4 and 5, here's what it says. It says, you, God, have installed your king. After what? After they conspired against Him. Folks, that is exactly what God did. In raising Christ from the dead. So the early church comes under adversity. Similar to the adversity that Christ faced. So what do they do? They retreat to the Old Testament and find promises about the suffering and exaltation of Christ. And they own them for themselves. What is that? That's theology. God, you controlled that. You raised Him from the dead. We believe that you who created everything are able also to control everything. So in the midst of this threat of opposition, they're laying out strong foundations of clear theology. Their raging and their plans is futile because they did not operate in a world where God sits in heaven, wringing His hands saying, what do I do now? They killed Jesus. Oh, okay. I guess I'll raise Him to life. It's not the way it worked, folks. It was the plan of God. These men that charged out against Christ, planned against Christ, raged against Christ, were not operating in a world where God is outside disinterested. No. He is actively controlling so that their plan to destroy backfires through the resurrection and when Christ is raised, what are they thinking now? What are they thinking now? But see, they have a choice. They can repent or they can rebel. And that's always what happens, isn't it? You see a clear truth about Christ. You can turn from your sin and trust in Jesus or you can go on your own way in life. These men had a settled conviction and this early church had a settled conviction as they prayed that God was in control that He wasn't in heaven frustrated by what was going on saying, oh no, they're facing adversity. The disciples aren't frustrated by the diversity. Notice they aren't praying for deliverance from the adversity. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying, God, please take this away. We can't function in this kind of environment. What are they doing? They're saying, God, You are over all of this. You overruled in the suffering and death of Christ. You raised Him to life. Work in our lives. Do you see? What we're often seeking when adversity comes is not to think about truth about God that will be an anchor for our soul in the midst of that circumstance. What we're usually looking for is an exit. Folks, God is bigger than that. He's in more control than that. He is the ultimate authority in all of our circumstances. Psalm 2, verse 4 makes a fascinating statement. It, it, it talks about the, about the kings of the earth. They're raging and they're doing all their things to come against the Lord and against his anointed. And verse 4, it says this it says, The God who sits in heaven laughs. In what setting? In a very serious setting. Where there is significant opposition that is pressing against the cause of Christ. What is God doing? To God, it is laughable humanity would rage against the king of kings. That's the idea. It's like, it's like a, a dad or, or a man who's, who's you know, kind of playing with a little child, a two-year-old child, and he, and he, he puts his hand on his head and says, go ahead, hit me, hit me. Okay? The adult has no problem controlling that child and protecting himself from the child. And usually when you're doing that, what's happening? You're not saying, come on, hit me, hit me. You're, just, you're laughing. It's, it's, you're, you're joshing. You're having fun. Folks, that's the idea. God is not in any way, His plan is not in any way threatened by the adversity that you're facing today. Why? He created everything. He is the despot. He is the sovereign controller of everything. Whatever circumstances you're facing. If you go to the early church, they would say to you, look, when you face difficulty, when you face circumstances that cause you to think, God's wringing in His His hands in heaven. He doesn't know what to do. He's not sure how to respond. Quote from Psalm 2. Our God is in the heavens. He does what pleases Him. Okay? His his sovereignty is exhausted. He's in control even of the events that brought the death of Christ to pass so that your sin could be paid for. When Christ was in the grave, the Father was not in heaven saying, "Mm, what do we do now? Okay, no. He he told... David said, you promised, Psalm 16, you would not let your Holy One undergo decay. What's what's David saying? He's going to die. He's going to be crucified, but you're not going to let Him go undergo decay. You will respond to that adversity, and you will raise Him from the dead. The truth is that circumstances often get beyond us, but they never get beyond God. Circumstances often overwhelm us, but they can never overwhelm God. Why? He created everything, and He controls everything. And when people taunt Him, He can just snicker. It's laughable that people would try to oppose the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's laughable. Pray Scripture. Pray with, with solid, foundational, biblical truth in mind. The, the, the foundation of creation. God made all things. Inspiration. God spoke by His servant David. He told us this would happen. And He overruled it. The theology about God's sovereignty. That He is, he is in absolute control. And He never wrings His hands wondering what to do. He's never been in that place. Man, I've been there so often. And remember it well. God has never been in that place. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. And when you pray, notice this. The first five verses of this prayer, okay, are all about God. And then we move on to the last two verses of this prayer and we find the request. After they've established who God is in the heaven, sovereign, overall, creator of all, then they utter this very simple prayer. Now, Lord... Consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand. I I love that phrase. To heal, to perform miracles, signs, and wonders through the name of Jesus. Okay? What was forbidden? Don't utter a word in His name. What do they do? They go back and they begin to pray. How? In Jesus' name. Okay? Okay? I worked at a place called Hagridorn about 18 years ago. Uh, psychiatric, geriatric facility. Most of you are probably familiar with it. I was involved with the chaplain staff, and I was able to teach a Bible study on my own. They were doing a joint service, like a All Religions Are Okay service. Okay? Your truth is good. My truth is good. all. And they said, look, when you pray at this service, you can't pray in Jesus' name. I looked at the head chaplain and I said how do I pray not in Jesus' name? I pray in Jesus' name. And I ended up having to leave the job. Like so I, I can't do that. I can't pray for you like neutral prayers to something I pray to someone. Pray in Jesus' name. That's the way it is. Now, it wasn't like I was losing a lot of income. It was a very part-time thing that I was involved in. Okay? I was covering some of the extra bills that were present at the time. But I know that a lot of you are in situations where speaking Jesus' name... Speaking Jesus' name is my job. Okay? I'm not afraid to do that here. Okay? But I know a lot of you work in situations where you face adversity if you speak in Jesus' name. Some of you have family circumstances where when you speak in Jesus' name, there's a price to pay. You know what God wants you to remember? That He's in absolute control. He wants you to lovingly assert the name of Christ. To speak the name of Jesus. So the people can know that hope is found in Jesus only. And as these men pray, their, their prayer request is very simple. It's God, look at their threats. Okay, it's verse 29. Just God, there it is. Okay, here's what I'm facing. These are the circumstances that have come against me. God, take note of it. That's all they're saying. Okay, and then they say, verse 29, enable your servants, okay, to speak your word with great boldness. Give us spirit-driven, spirit-inspired speech that will persuade. Okay, if you share your faith with people, on a regular basis, in a, in, a, in a loving way, but in a way that you say, you know what, I honestly believe that God wants me to communicate the truth of the crosswork of Christ to the world around me. If you're doing that, I can guarantee you, you're doing something else. I can almost assure you, you're doing this. You are praying for power. Because you know, I cannot change someone's heart. I say that to people all the time. I cannot change your heart, but I can pray that the Spirit of God will cause these words to make sense to you. This is what they're praying for. They're not praying for deliverance from the circumstances. They're praying for boldness in the circumstance. God, give us Spirit-driven boldness. Give us words that will persuade people and cause them to see that hope is found in Jesus Christ. Unashamedly, that is the request that they offer up. And I love the last thing they say. And they say, God, would you join with us and stretch out your hand? Stretch out your hand. Show yourself strong. Isaiah 41 and verse 10 is the text that comes to my mind. I just want to read this for you real quickly. Isaiah 41 and verse 10. Listen to what this says. It says, So do not fear. What does adversity cause us to do? It causes us to fear. It's intended to cause us to fear. God says to you, do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with what? My righteous right hand. But can I think of all the words about God and the strength of His hand in the Old Testament. Okay, and when When the early church is facing pressure for speaking in the name of Christ, and the threat of death is clearly there. In a couple chapters, it will start to happen in this book. When they face that, what do they say? They say, God, stretch out your hand. Work powerfully. Work convincingly. Give spirit-driven speech and spirit-driven acts. Go before us. Folks, that's what we need to ask God to do. If you try to witness in your flesh, I'm going to tell you, you will feel so defeated and weak. But if you go to God and you say, God, give me boldness. Adversity is causing consternation. Give me confidence. That's what they asked for. So that God would begin to work and move through them in a powerful way. Do we ask God on a regular basis to overcome our reluctance to speak the truth? Are you ready for the pressure and adversity that comes against you to silence you? That's its aim. Okay? If you look in your life and you say, you know what? There is or has been an extended period of silence about Jesus in relationship to sharing Him with others. An extended period of silence. You've probably caved to the adversity. Okay? You've probably been thinking about speaking but not speaking because you don't want to deal with the response that comes. Because I understand that. I want to tell you right now, as your pastor, I understand that. Okay, I know what it is to want to speak for Christ and to fail more times than I would like to admit. Okay? How do we overcome that fear? How do we overcome that silence? How do we turn up the volume and speak that truth and hope is only found in Jesus? How do we do that? We have to cry out to God and say, God, send your spirit And what happens at the end of this text? Here's what it says. They were filled, all of them, with the Holy Spirit. And the result was, they spoke the word of God with boldness. Folks, please, do not go out of here saying, Pastor Tim said we should be witnesses for Christ, so that's what I need to go out and do. You'll fail. You'll fail. Go to God and say, God, I would love to be a witness like Peter and John. I would love to have the courage of the early church. How do I get there? Settle your convictions about Christ. Settle your convictions about what it is to be a witness. Solidify what you believe about God. Is He sovereign in your life or isn't He? Are there the things that He can't handle or does He handle all things? And then pray. Once you see who He is, then pray and say, God, you make me an effective witness for you in the world that I live in. Folks, don't let the adversity, the pressure, do what it is intended to do to silence you. Let it be the pressure that drives you into God's presence. Not saying, God, oh God, would you please take away my problems and my troubles and my pressure. No, say, God, in this setting, change me and use me. Let me be your witness. And then when God brings opportunities, you'll find that I believe the Spirit of God will fill you and give you as they say. He filled them with with courage and boldness and they spoke the word of God. Here's an encouraging closing thought for you. End of Ephesians 6, Paul writes from prison. The last thing he asked the church in Ephesus to pray for is this. He says, and pray for me, that I will speak the word of God with boldness. That verse has, on a regular basis, blown me away. Here's a guy in prison for the truth of Christ. What does he say? He says, would you pray for me? That when I have opportunity, I would speak the word of God with boldness. Where? In a setting where he was put there to be silent. And what does he say? Pray that God will fill me. He's saying, I'm afraid I may fail to speak the name of Christ in which there is hope only. Pray for me. Folks, could we pray that when we face adversity, we would early... And clearly, make our, settle our convictions, understand what we believe about God, and say, God, help me to be your witness in the world around me. Let's pray together this morning.